Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being in church today. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. While you are turning there, in uh, lieu of an introduction, I was asked uh, by one of our 20-somethings why we uh, had the lights off on Good Friday, but we normally don't on Sunday morning. So instead of uh, giving a normal introduction, let me go ahead and answer that for you. Many, if you've been here for a long time, you may have heard some of this. If you're newer, you maybe haven't. And I'd like to try and explain that this doesn't just happen by accident. We actually put some thought into that. So um, if you, depending on your background, if you have been to a perhaps more trendy church background, uh, then how we do things might be a little unusual. If you step into a more uh, trendy environment, you'll probably find, and we're not necessarily against this, like I said, we just did this on Good Friday, you'll probably find a room that is dark and a stage that is really bright. And that is done quite intentionally so that everything that around you is kind of faded to the periphery and all of the focus and attention goes to what is happening on stage, right? It's a theater mentality. You bring the house lights down, you bring the stage lights up, and everyone's attention is drawn to what is happening on the stage. We're not necessarily against that. However, when we gather together, we are very convicted that this is a gathering of the people of God. And I don't want you, and we as a ministry, don't want you just to focus on what is happening up here. I want you to realize that we are doing that collectively. That you are not in a faceless crowd, uh, an amorphous sea of humanity that is just sitting out there. You are in a body of Christ. And we gather together to sing and encourage and worship and sit around the the, the gathering of God's people to recognize who we are and what we are doing together. So, with that in mind, we keep the lights up. I want you to be able to see each other, to know that you are in this with others, to know you need to encourage that brother or sister in the Lord, to, to have a little bit of a sense of presence within the whole. It is not just what happens on the stage that you are here for. That is important. But we gather here together, and that is a big deal to us, and so the lights stay up. I want you to see your Bible. I want you to see each other. All right, that's it. I just wanted you to know. Somebody asked, so I figured I'd let every. said, you know what, I'm preaching this week. I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody. I just thought you'd know, like to know why. So if you're newer, that's the explanation. It, it would, we could make the gym feel a little less like a gym. If we painted everything black and brought the lights down and lit up the stage, you wouldn't even know you were in a gym. And we'd probably be more trendy because of that. We are willing to sacrifice being a little more trendy so that we can be the body of Christ known together. So I just wanted you to know that's why we do this. That's why we're gathered here today. Okay, we're in Philippians chapter 2. I would like to formally request Ellen. Don't bring kids on the stage anytime I preach anymore, all right? I've had this happen like the last few times. Every time there's a kid on stage, I have to preach afterwards, and no one's ever going to pay attention to anything I say. So, uh, thanks. I don't know how that happened. If you would, find in your Bible Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have one, there should be one in a chair nearby. We're on page 980. We'll go ahead and stand together this morning as we read from God's Word. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we gather as your people. And Lord, I ask that as we consider the miracle of the incarnation, that that miracle would extend today to our own lives, hearts, and thinking that you, through your Spirit, would press the truth of what the Incarnation was down deep into our thinking so that we can see with fresh eyes to delight and enjoy and be convicted and be comforted. Lord, would your Spirit and your Word work a new miracle here today. We cannot do that on our own. Lord, I have nothing to offer in my own power or ability or rhetoric. I, I beg of you to take this dead message and make it alive for your people through your word and your spirit. We trust in you to work that here today, Lord God. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So our task today is to consider the incarnation. If you're unfamiliar, that is a, a, a Bible term, really. It just means when Jesus became human, taking on flesh. And we are going to try to consider that on the uh, safe tracks of Philippians 2 to guide this train. I want to allow us to sit in it to struggle with it, to savor it, to expand our thinking and deepen our joy in the person of Christ. And we do have some work to do here because it is not difficult to miss the depth and the beauty of the incarnation. There's probably two very notable reasons for that. The first is because we typically think about the incarnation around Christmas time, right? That, that's when Jesus took on flesh in our church calendar. It's the natural time for this doctrinal point to arise. But Christmas has also become loaded with all kinds of cultural moorings and familial trappings. And so it, it's a competitive space. So we maybe don't always consider the depth of what is happening in the incarnation the way that we should. But there's probably a second reason, and this one gets remedied by our text here today very well. When we typically think of the incarnation, we do it from earth up. We, right, and again, it, it's not necessarily wrong. It's just a matter of emphasis. It's, this happens at Christmas time, and what do we do? We read Luke chapter 2. Unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we gather around and we praise God that a Savior has come. But we don't typically think of what had to happen for that Savior to descend. 
We are grateful that he has come down, but rarely do we typically start our thinking on the incarnation and the heavenlies and work down. We normally start receiving a Savior and offer praise up, and that is good and right and proper, but it is incomplete. There is another side to the incarnation coin, and we get to, through Philippians 2, consider the incarnation from heaven down today. We'll begin with the anticipation of the incarnation. The anticipation. There are a few things that, that need to be said before we can jump into this text. And in many ways, this text is, uh, it, it, I'm going to be pretty closely tied to it, but in many ways, it is a springboard for the broader doctrine of the incarnation. So we'll consider some other places as well this morning. We have to lay out some foundation before we even really get to Philippians chapter 2. So, what is there and everything that leads up to this moment? Well, first, the incarnation, we have to recognize, is the will of the Father. The incarnation is the will of the Father. If you have your Bible, you can flip a little bit to the left to the Gospel of John. Page 890, if you're using one from the chairs. Chapter 5 is what we're going to look at here first. We're going to flip over to chapter 6 in just a moment. But it's important to realize, to consider, to, to ground our thinking, and the reality that this, this wasn't a divine happenstance. That this was planned, intended, and led by the Almighty God of the universe. Through the will of the Father. So, if you look in John chapter 5 and verse 19. So, Jesus, that is, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise." For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Flip over, probably one page, John chapter 6, verse 38. This is after the uh, feeding of the 5,000, the eat my flesh, drink my blood passages, the Jews want more signs, and in the midst of that, in verse 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Christ came, took on flesh, not because he had a brilliant plan of his own, but because the will of the Father led him here to take on flesh and to redeem those who are in him. Just one more, if you will, Galatians chapter 4, a little bit back to the right in your Bible, getting closer to our text in Philippians, page 974. This, one of the classic texts on the incarnation, right along with our text this morning in Philippians 2. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Jesus does not go on his own volition. He is sent. God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we start, church, by recognizing that the incarnation is the will of the Father. It is the Father who directs the Son. And there is a within that doctrine of the incarnation that fits into another doctrinal point of God's self-revelation. We often miss this, or perhaps not miss, but do not give it the emphasis that it likely deserves. That God is self-revealed. Humanity did not go on some Lewis and Clark type exposition to, uh, expedition, that's what I'm looking for, expedition, not exposition, exposition is what we're doing here, expedition, God did not send, or excuse me, humanity did not send out some kind of expedition to go and find God. We didn't go through the backwoods or in, in the spiritual jungles to go and seek out this deity. Far be it from that truth. Instead, it is God who comes to us. It is God who makes himself known. He bridges the gap between humanity and deity. And when we see the person of Christ, this is done in an entirely unique way. All the rest of God's self-revelation is pointing to God. So if you look at the sacrificial system, or if you look at the, 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 the law, or you look at even your Bible, all of that is there to point you to the person of God. But in Christ, here, we don't have a pointer to God, we have God Himself. We have an entirely unique form of God self-revealing. He is not giving us some virtue. He's not revealing some character of himself. He's not offering up some principle or a system of thought. In Christ, God is revealing himself. All other forms of God's self-revelation point to God. Christ is God. The manifestation of his eternal Will. So you could flip to Ephesians chapter 1 and see that, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us for adoption in him. Christ takes on flesh because it is the will of the Father to make himself known, and Christ is the climax of that self-revelation. He is brought about to make God clearly known to his people, and to redeem those who are lost. So our first point, this is the will of the Father. Second, this is the needed conclusion of the Old Testament. Now, I'm sure that all of you just 
have encyclopedic knowledge of every sermon that I've ever preached here. So I, I trust that when I say this, some of you are able to rifle back about a year and a half ago and go, wait a minute, you preached a sermon out of Luke 24 not too long ago uh, on the road to Emmaus. And on that sermon, I said something to the effect that if you remember, this is after the resurrection and Jesus meets these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and he explains to them how all the law and the prophets and all of Moses pointed to him. And I said, okay, now don't make this text walk too far, right? Some people will abuse this text. They'll, they'll mean that every little detail in the Old Testament somehow was about Christ and, you know, Joseph was sold for silver and Jesus is sold for silver and Moses' staff is made of wood, so that's the cross. And you just got to be careful here. And I probably didn't do a very good job in that sermon of letting you know that there is another danger on the other side of that coin. Yes, you can overinterpret every little detail of the Old Testament. Don't make that mistake. However, there is an equally grave or perhaps even more grave mistake. Graver, whichever one it is. There is a more concerning mistake to separate the Old Testament from the person of Christ. To not see that all of the Old Testament is drawing you in to the person of Jesus. That this has a conclusion. The whole book of Hebrews is this argument, right? All of these things, this, this ongoing revelation of God, the office of prophet and priest of king, the, the sacrificial system, the establishment of the law, all of these are pale versions of needed institutions that find their vibrant, colorful conclusion in the person of Christ. So I, I don't overinterpret your Old Testament. You don't need to make every little physical detail about Christ. That being said, please don't miss that the Old Testament is there to point you to Christ. You should see themes and all kinds of theological truths that are pointing, that are exposing this. Saying, look at the, the redemptive desire of the Almighty God. What could that possibly look like in a grander conclusion? What could that be? What, what could this new covenant be? And it is in the person of Christ that we see the fully colorized, the three-dimensional, the the beauty of the person and redemptive work of God revealed. What you had in the Old Testament is pointing you to a greater reality in Christ Jesus. It is no accident that we restart history when he comes. We take time and we crack it open like a coconut and insert eternality right there and say, we're starting everything over. There was some time before Christ and now we are after when eternity came down into time. All of the Old Testament pointed and draws and leads you to the person of Jesus. It is the conclusion of the ongoing story of God intervening to redeem his people. You heard that in John, right? I came down to save those who were lost. Which brings me to the third point in this anticipation of the incarnation. The incarnation is the beginning of the necessary remedy for sin. 
The sacrificial system is limited. It, it can only redeem so far. But it is on the cross that we have this final conclusion to the remedy for sin. But if that cross is not met with an incarnate deity on it, then it is incredibly limited in its ability to save. The cross is inconsequential for your life if it is not the Almighty God who is hanging on it. There is no ability for a cross to save, even for a perfect person, to save with the amount and depth and uh, extension that is found at the cross of Christ. It is only because He is the Almighty Son of God that that salvation is able to extend here to you and I to this day. This is when the ongoing story of salvation gets kicked off into full gear. It is the incarnation that we start to go, oh, okay. Something big is happening. Think of it in terms of the 1812 overture. I know you are all classical music buffs. If you don't remember, Tchaikovsky, the 1812 overture, it's telling the story of Napoleon trying to invade Russia and the Russian forces repelling him. And the first like 11 minutes or so, it, it's, it's important, it's big, but it's all kind of this like little string music and like light battles, skirmishes here and there. He makes his way all the way to Moscow. This is all in the music, by the way. And it's about 11 minutes in that you get that grand repulsion of the French forces Dun, 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 and the cannons start to go off, literally. And for the rest of that overture, cannons continue to resound. The incarnation is the start of the grand cannons going off, alarming you. Something big is about to change. All of that stuff beforehand, all of that anticipation was but a preamble for the giant change in salvation and redemption history. Here, in the incarnation, we have the first steps that are needed to bring about redemption at the cross. The high tide of sin and death begin to recede at the incarnation brings us to our text this morning. If we've laid the necessary groundwork to our text, point number two, the imperative of the incarnation. We looked at this last week, and we're going to keep teasing it out as we keep going, but I can't let it pass on and just consider the doctrine from a 10,000-foot view. I, I have to honor Paul's intention here just a little bit verse 5 of our text this morning, there is a command. Have this mind among yourselves. All of what follows for Paul, all of the story of the mind of Christ and him emptying himself and stepping out of heaven and going to the cross is but an illustration to help you understand how you are to be humble. This is, for Paul, the purpose of the 
the great doctrinal truth of the incarnation in Philippians 2 is to point you to a grander humility that is to be a part of your life. We have to consider this call to humility when we look at this text. And, and, and this is completely anecdotal and this is just my opinion. We have to consider it like double because of the culture in which we live. I don't know, I don't, I'm sure there's some kind of social science formula for this. I wouldn't know how to do it. If you were to try to rank order virtues in a society, I'm not sure how you would do that. But if you could, I would, I would be willing to wager a little bit of money that humility would be last on our list. In terms of our cultural values of virtue, it's going to be hard for you to argue to me that anything is lower than humility. We live in a culture dead set on self-glorification. We, we construct all of our social structures, all of our efforts, all of our vocational goals to lift ourselves up. The idea of living and working and serving in humble anonymity is just mind-blowingly foreign to us. How could we, why, what, what am I even doing? I had a f college professor, a friend of mine, who had a, a teenager son, and then he tells the story of them being on vacation, and they were at, you know, like in a national park or something like that, and there was this this cliff and a giant lake, and his son wanted to jump off the cliff into the lake, right? And he said, no, we're not going to do that. We don't know if it's safe. And while they're sitting there, they watch two other guys come up and jump off the cliff into the lake. He's like, oh, geez. Okay, I guess you can do it. But there are two requirements. You have to go from exactly the same place we just saw those other guys do it, and two, I will not record it. And his son replied, well, what's the point even? right? Is that not us? If I can't prove something to my friends, if I can't put it online and show how cool of my family vacation has been, then why am I even doing any of this? Church, we need this call to humility. We need to consider deeply what is this mind of Christ? What does that mean to be humble? And we have to think about it from every possible angle because all of our culture is pushing you in other directions. The command to have the humble mind of Christ will result in a countercultural life. If you follow that command, it will put you at odds with the world around you. We have to consider this imperative here. Have this mind of Christ. And we'll see what that mind is. We'll try to extrapolate that out. We'll try to consider that humility well. But I also want you to notice, we'll get there in a couple weeks, but in verses 12 and 13, after this kind of, this hymn of the incarnation of te uh, Christ wraps up, we see that we are not only called to have this humble mind, but 
Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you are called to obey, and you are enabled by the Almighty God to obey. He enables your obedience. This humble mind of Christ that seems so foreign is so foreign. It requires the ingrained, indwelling work of the Spirit for you to overcome your sinful nature on this. If you think, I'll just be more humble, you're in trouble. What you need is to plead with the Almighty God to change my heart. Do what I cannot do on my own. I, I don't, there's nothing that is natural to me that possesses this type of humility. God, would you give that? Would you change my heart? And he calls you to it, and he enables you to it. Okay, let's continue on. Point three, and this is really the, the, the bulk of, of the, of the doctrinal consideration we have this morning is the realization of the incarnation. And three points here. Letter A, we start with the need. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. There is a dire need for a sacrifice that can cover sin. And if you were to scour all of the earth, to search high and low with the, the most advanced teams and the uh, technology that is available to you, you will not find a sufficient sacrifice. And so earth cries out and God responds. There is nothing that we have that can pay the price that we owe. We have a need greater than our supply. And so we turn to heavens and we find Christ. And why is this different? Well, because of verse 6. He is in the form of God. He can offer an eternal, infinite sacrifice because he is of infinite value. So this need is begging for someone of greater value than us to fulfill it. And there we turn and we, we look and we find a willing Savior in Jesus Christ. And he empties himself. Now, we have to be careful here. In verses 6 and 7, every version of heresy has been tried. All right? just want you to know from a church history perspective, people have read this, right? Form of God, not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. And they've tried every formulation of this. So we've tried to make that out to mean that Christ is not divine. Tried to make that out to mean that Christ is not actually human. Tried to deny his divine nature. Tried to deny his human nature. Tried to deny the unity of the natures in one person. Tried to deny the distinction of the natures. 
It is an ongoing uh, battle within church history, how to figure this, how to actually formulate this. And let me give you the language. I'm going to read it. I know it's a little bit cumbersome, all right? This comes from the Council of Chalcedon, 451, what we now call the hypostatic union. And I want you to just, when you hear this out loud, this is after, you know, Christianity doesn't really become legal until 313. So they're not allowed to openly talk about things until 313. So we've got like 150 plus years of them trying to talk this out. But when I say talk this out, they're not on a Zoom call, all right? They're writing letters back and forth to each other. That takes a little while for things to get sorted out. They finally have to call these councils to sort these things. Everyone's disagreeing as to how to formulate this. And after all of these errant attempts, this is what they come to. I know this sounds like a lawyer. It's because they're trying to make sure we refute all of these errors. Here it is, the Chalcedonian formula. We all, with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. At once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a rational soul and body, of one substance with the Father, and at the same time of one substance with us according to manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. Recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten God of the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a long, drawn-out, theologian-lawyer-like way of saying Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That is what happens in Philippians chapter 2. That is the doctrine of the incarnation, or to put it in terms that is uh, equally simple, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Neither one of those things overwhelms the other, so it's not, as the, the Nestorian Christians would suggest, that, that Jesus' humanity is like a drop of honey in the ocean of his divinity, and you couldn't even find it if you tried. Each one is there, and there's some mystery at play as to how the person of Christ is fully God and fully man, but that is the doctrine of the hypostatic union. This is the crux of what we find in verse 6 and 7. And again, back to our point here, aren't you grateful? Because you needed someone to take the price for your sin. Again, I, I'm, I, we fall into this so quickly. We'll, we'll come back to our top-down view of the incarnation, but we have to look up sometimes as well. We, we, down here on earth, are crying out in desperate need for someone to fix the wrongs of our lives. My sin is so cumbersome, so bulky, so unmanageable. that I need someone greater than myself to deal with it. And again, let's switch back to our intended disp uh, disposition in this message. Go back up to the heavens. Think about what Christ does here. We read over it quickly. You can, you can just read the words and not consider their meaning. But I want you to stop and consider their meaning. What does Christ do? 
He does not consider equality a thing to be grasped. Now, that doesn't mean he isn't equal. It means he does not try to assert his equality. He does not exploit his honored position. This is, again, astonishing, particularly in our culture. I tried very hard to think of a way to illustrate this. And nothing seemed to do its service. The best I could come up with was the idea of you, just for a moment, just imagine that you are the only child of an incredibly wealthy parents. And they both have passed away, and you can go ahead and, and cinematize it, you take it to that. You go to the lawyer's office, right? That like reading with the lawyer. And you sit down with the lawyer, and he looks across the table at you and he goes, you know, I've been your family's legal counsel. I'm like the in-house family counsel for a long time. Your, your parents said I was like family. So I went ahead and took the liberty to redraw up that will and include an equal share in the inheritance for myself. Because I'm like family. Now, if you can break loose from this little fictional scenario for a moment, some of you have had real-life scenarios dealing with inheritance. And you know how bitter and contentious that can get. Who gets what? Can you imagine someone who has no claim trying to step in and say, you know, I'm going to take some of it for me? No, you're not. No, you're not. We'll see you in court, right? You're, you have no claim on this. This inheritance is not yours. And yet somehow that lawyer thinks, you know, I, I'm just going to split this right down the middle. I'm like family, so I'm apart. Which of you would go, you know what, you're right. I, I'm going to give up my claim to that inheritance. I'll let you. you know, in fact, you take my half too. And was not what Christ gave up greater than that? As frustrating as that scenario, there might be some heartburn in the room just from thinking about that. And yet what Christ gave up was more, was deeper, was more costly. He did not grasp. He gave. Now, let's just pause here for just a brief applicational thought and one that will probably not be loved by many of us. We love to talk about our rights. Don't we? There's just something about being a red-blooded American. I just gotta, I, I have a right to fill in the blank. It doesn't even really matter what it is. We love our rights. And I'm not in any way trying to downplay that. In the course of human history, a government recognizing the rights of its citizen is nothing short of a miracle, and we should be grateful for that. However, as a Christian, you have no rights. You have no rights. You have the right to put on the attitude of Christ and give of yourself for others. 
you are called to, just like Christ did, give of yourself at such a profound level that the world is left scratching their head. And I know you can get on your political soapbox. I'm sure, I understand. I, I've, I've read a lot of history. I've thought about it a lot. Very grateful for what we have as citizens of our country. But don't confuse being a citizen of this country and being a citizen of heaven. You have the right to give of yourself for those who don't. They don't have anything. You have the right to follow the mind of Christ, to step down off of your throne and serve. Just thought I'd bring it to your attention. Well, actually, let me show it to you one other place. If you have your Bible, Romans 15. Let, let me show you the inerrant word of God connecting this again. Your call to give of yourself for those who don't have as you follow the example of Christ. Romans 15. Starting in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Ah, that's a tough one right there. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Aren't you glad, church? But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, I'm not suggesting you are not allowed to use the legal system or that they, I'm not trying to disparage of any of that. I'm trying to put into you and me a disposition of the mind of Christ. What would that look like? Can I override my Americanness with my Christ likeness? Let's move on. I'm sure you're ready. Letter B. The process. First, we started with the need for the incarnation. Now we look at the process. We're back in Philippians 2, and, and this is the language where all of the theologians get real excited and we start to talk about things, right? He emptied himself. Well, what does that mean? And we like to debate it, and they write books, and they're really long, and you can, uh, you can uh, make all kinds of claims, and there's not... An, Incredible specificity. So what should we do? We should let the text specify what it wants to specify. Right? The text does not say that he gives up his deity. That would be heresy. The text does not say that he gives up use of divine attributes. It, it may be true. That's not in this text. 
It does not say he gives up knowledge. You might be able to argue that out of Luke 2. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. But you can't argue that out of Philippians 2. What does the text tell us he empties himself of? Well, there's two primary clauses in that verse that explain, really from the same reality from two directions, he takes on the form of the servant, he is born in the likeness of men. The emptying of Christ is a description of Christ stepping out of the glory of heaven. He empties himself to be a servant. No one chooses to be a servant, right? Servanthood is a sad conclusion of a bunch of bitter circumstances. War or financial shortcomings or hatred or familial wickedness, whatever it is, these are the things that lead to servanthood, but not for Christ. Christ empties himself. He steps down low in order to redeem. Commentator Ben Witherington writes this. It would not have been shocking to Gentiles to hear that their God had chosen to take on human form. They'd heard of such stories about Zeus and Hermes, among others. But to be told that their God had chosen to become a slave among humans, that was a different story. That is a shocking story because it deconstructed everything they thought was written in stone about the hierarchical nature of reality and relationships and about all of their honor and shame codes. Let me show you briefly in action, John chapter 13. What does this servanthood look like? And you, you can go to Mark 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. The, the emptying of Christ is leaving the glory of heaven to earth to be a servant. John 13, starting in verse 3, this is the upper room. We're nearing the, the, the Passion Week has just begun. We're nearing the end of the life of Christ. And in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father. Now, I love just a little peek into the mind of Christ. Because he knows he was sent by the Father, that everything is held by the Father, that he's going back to the Father, that enables him to what? Verse 4, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is servant's work. And I would point out to you that if you have been saved by the grace of God, that you have the same certainty of where your ultimate destination is that Christ does in this passage. And so the, the mind of Christ that enables him to serve is yours. Isn't that what Paul just told us? Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. I just, happened, just read it for you in action in John 13. 
took on the form of a servant. Why? Because he knew what the Father's plan was. He knew he was sent. He knew he was returning. And you do too, church. And you do too. It allows you to not be concerned when you are forced to go down low and serve. Because you know you will be brought high. I don't have to fight for my glory here in this life. I have greater, grander glory waiting for me. I can serve here. That is the mind we are called to. And again, we just have to try and think about this. Top down, think about what happens in terms of personal glory at the Incarnation. We, we generally like to think of the cross as the biggest drop in Jesus' glory, right? From the triumphant entry to the cross. And there's good reason for that, but I want you to also consider how much of a stock hit Jesus' glory takes in the incarnation. To go from the glories of heaven to the right hand of the Father to be born in this broken, sinful world. Again, we normally look at that from the ground up, but if we think about it from the heavens down, if the, the like height of glory that a human can experience is a 10, right? It's winning the Super Bowl or, or, or the, the end of World War II. You know, it's the, the highest elation a human can experience is a 10, and the lowest a human can experience is a 1, then Jesus went from a 10,000 to a 1 when he took on flesh. He stepped out of the glory of heaven. And the humility of Christ is seen at the cross, but do not miss the fact that it is also seen in the incarnation. That just taking on flesh for you to redeem you was an astounding act of humility. Absolutely mind-blowing. Again, we, we frequently miss this because Christmas is so glorious for us. For Christ, he left the glory of heaven. He was brought down low to be willing to be made a human. And be made a human forever, by the way. The ascension is not the undoing of the incarnation. He comes down low. Low. And just when you think, man, to go from 10,000 to a five, you can't go any lower, then we get to verse nine, excuse me, uh, verse eight. And being found in human form, right? He's already been humbled. What does he do? He humbles himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If stepping out of heaven took Christ from a 10,000 to a 10, then the cross took Christ from a 10 to a negative 10,000. And it is that way because of what happens at the cross. We have to, again, think very well and theologically here. A crucifixion is a brutal thing. It was meant to be a particularly shameful death. The normal form of death is suffocation, and it would usually take days 
That person had to hang in a public space to the point where their strength gave out on them and they could not lift themselves up to get a breath and they would die, suffocating. And as awful as that may have been, it would not have been the greatest, lowest form if the wrath of God would not have been poured out on Christ there. The execution in and of itself is not what makes the cross so gruesome. There are thousands of Romans who have been executed on a cross, perhaps tens of thousands. The shame and the humility and the lowliness of the cross is not in and of itself what it makes this a broken reality. It is in the unique instance of the cross of Christ that we have, spiritually, Jesus receiving the punishment for sin that he does not deserve. That is what takes this lowest of low human experience, a 1 on the 1 to 10 scale, to a negative 10,000 on the scale. That the wrath of the Father is poured out on Christ. It's not just another execution. The Romans executed somebody every day. This was not an execution. This was a God-damned execution. Where Christ received the wrath of the Father. pointed this out to you before from this pulpit, but every prayer by Christ in the Gospels begins with some kind of relational statement, Father or Abba, Father, with one notable exception. On the cross, Jesus hangs there dying, and he cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? It is the fact that the Father turns His back on the Son that causes the cross to be so lowly. It is not the execution in and of itself. It is the immensely worse spiritual fate that Christ suffers at the cross. The weight, the weight of sin. It is this that we have to view from the top down. Again, I look at the cross and I think, isn't this a great, grand, glorious moment of redemption? And yes, it is. Don't miss that. But when you flip the script and you look at it from above, you see the humility required for Jesus to take on flesh. You see the humility required for Jesus to humbly go to a cross. And then you see the wrath of God poured out on Christ for you, for me, for us. And then Paul tells you to have that kind of mind. Don't miss it. That otherworldly humility, that otherworldly regard for someone other than yourself. What would it even look like, church? What would it even look like? The Almighty Son of God is rejected by the Father so that you can be made a son. And the cross is the mediating means of redemption. The wrath of God is ready at any moment to burst forth 
because of the justice of God and the injustice of humanity. But Christ. But Christ steps in to receive the wrath that you and I deserve, to mediate the relationship for us unjust sinners. It is lower than anyone has ever been or ever will be. And he does so with great humility to bring you to the Father. Let me give it to you in the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles. Just great imagery here. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, I'm dipping into next week's passage here with this quote, but you can't leave it just at this low. He comes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, and then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through the green warm water into the black cold water, down through the increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and decay, and then up again, back to the color and the light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. Christ lowered himself to bring you back up. What are you then to do? And I'm stealing from next week's message. Sorry. I can't leave you there. We got what, what are you to then do? Well, you look at what Christ did for you. He rejected pride. He took on flesh. He became a servant. He dies on a cross. And so already you have this great call to humility that you are to follow. But next week is going to expand on some of that and list theologically help us see what happens here in terms of what you should do. First, verse 11, you should confess that Jesus is Lord. You are to confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Second, you are to worship. Look at verse 10. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow down in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Church, I hope and pray and been praying for you all week that you are now armed with a deeper understanding of the incarnation. And through that theological instinct, your appreciation, your ability to humble yourself, and the call to confess him as Lord and worship him with your life would be a great joy. To that end, let us pray.